This podcast is proudly produced and presented by the Zoomer Podcast Network, home of great podcasts like Marilyn Lightstone Reads, Idea City on the Air, and The Garden Show. It's Zoomer Radio's Theater of the Mind with Frank Proctor. Open your mind as we fill your head with amazing thrills, chills, <laughs> and laughs. Theater of the Mind, the best love programs from radio's golden age, only on Zoomer Radio. Now, here is your master storyteller, Frank Proctor. Well, thank you, and welcome to the show. Now, I hope you're enjoying the work of Frank Lovejoy in this serious night beat. And as I've mentioned before, I've got David Kelly in Waterloo, Iowa, to thank for that suggestion. Frank Lovejoy starred as Randy Stone, a reporter who covered the night beat for the Chicago Star, encountering criminals and troubled souls. Listeners were invited to join Stone as he searches through the city for the strange stories awaiting for him in the darkness. Well, tonight, Stone encounters a very powerful, armed, and dangerous man who has escaped from a mental institution and, in fact, hijacks the reporter's car with him in it. The episode is titled, They. Frank Lovejoy in... Night Beat. This is Randy Stone. I cover the night beat for the Chicago Star. Only tonight it was too hot to cover anything, and I mean anything. It was too hot for wife killings, gangland murders, and such nonsense. Nobody had energy for much more than to wave a soggy newspaper back and forth in front of his face. And the standard reply to the standard question, what's cooking, was a dull me. Around 10 o'clock, with no story in sight, I checked in with the office, and the switchbird girl sounded like the last rose of last summer, but she managed to inform me that Mr. Baker, the night editor, wanted words with me. As she wearily connected me, I dug out my handkerchief and blotted the back of my neck. Stone? Yeah? Climb into your old jalopy and take her right out to the insane asylum. Have they got air conditioning? No, I'm serious. There's a report that a half a dozen police cars are parked near the entrance. I called the check, but the switchboard doesn't answer. Beat it out there, Randy. I headed for the outskirts of town, and soon I was approaching my destination. I guess the way the world's been spinning around, a lot of people are getting lost in the fog because this place was really big. Half a dozen huge buildings spread out across acres of green land and a mighty high fence running all the way around. But even while I was still blocks away, I knew something was wrong. Because though it was only around ten o'clock, in all those buildings there wasn't one light burning. I drove up to the gate, and yep, there were police cars, and the police sergeant with a red flashlight signaled me to a stop. What's your business, cousin? I'm a newspaper man, Randy Stone of the Star. They're not buying any newspapers tonight. Got all the newspapers they need. Oh, fine. Now you and your flashlight step aside, and I'll go on in. No one goes in, no one goes out. Orders, cousin. 
Now, you get on that gate phone, cousin, and tell the superintendent the press is pounding at the walls. And if I don't get in, I'm going back to town and invent a story. When I start inventing, sometimes I just never stop. Well, I... Go ahead, cousin. When the Sarge hung up the phone, he swung open the gates and waved me in with his pretty red flashlight, saying that I was to go right on to the administration building. As I drove up the curved roadway, I saw little shafts of light moving through the darkness all over the place, but still no lights anyplace else. I parked in front of the administration building and was met by a man also carrying a flashlight. That man, this is my name, a public relations officer. Oh, uh, what's going on here? It's rather embarrassing, you know. I'm quite sure they'll find him any minute now. Find who? Uh, the superintendent thinks it would be best if you talk to Fogarty. Oh. This way. Right in here. The first aid room. Hey, easy, Doc. Easy, easy with the head. Uh, this chap, having his head bandaged. Fogarty, this is Mr. Stone, a newspaper reporter. But I thought... Uh... Well, the superintendent feels it's pointless to try and hide the facts any longer. Oh. They caught Captain Bob yet? They expect to any moment. I take it one of the inmates has escaped. Oh, no, no, not really. He's still on the grounds. That's what we don't want. No alarming story about an escaped maniac. Maniac, yeah. Hey, Doc, Doc, easy with a bandage. Hard to work with just a flashlight. <sighs> Captain Bob, that kills me, absolutely kills me. He's the unofficial mayor of this place, a real veteran. <laughs> Once he even applied for hash marks at service stores. And then to blow his top like this. Hey, easy, Doc, will you? Almost finished. A huge man with a mind of a child. A gentle giant, you might say. <laughs> gentle. Uh, what caused the blow-up? What caused it? Yeah. That's a reasonable question. We took away his brown sugar. His, uh, his which? He kept it in his footlocker for his oatmeal. Well, they were afraid of roaches, you know, so they kept asking him to turn it in. Today they got tired of him ignoring them. So they sent me around. It was all by himself in a ward, this giant of a man, sitting on his bed in his gym shoes and his red bathrobe. Captain Bob. Captain Bob. Splendid. Wasn't that splendid, Fogarty? Yeah, sure. Now, you, listen. you know, it's all in the diaphragm. It's right down here, the diaphragm, you see. Yeah, how many times did I tell him? Enrico, if you only breathe properly and forgot the chicken... Open your footlocker, Captain. And why? The brown sugar. It's got to go. Roll gently. Okay. Sweet okay, I'll open it myself. Hold it. Down goes the lid. Now, goodbye, Mr. Fogarty. Look, I got my orders. Stop that racket, will you? They gave me orders to take that sugar. Repeat that slowly, Mr. Fogarty. I said they gave me orders. They gave you orders. They again. 
They know that brown sugar is the very essence of my power, so they must take it away from me. Now, come on, Captain Bob. How long ago was it that they decided I could no longer have my fine gold-leaf tobacco plug? And wasn't it only last year that they made me shave my beard? Walt used to say to me, Walt Whitman, that is, Sure, mine's a decent sort of beard, but yours, Captain Bob, why, yours is pure silk. And they made me shave it. Cap, you're getting all excited. It's too hot to get excited. I've sat back. I've bided my time. I've waited. Now I wait no longer. Cap, Hands off of me, Fogarty. Cap, sit down. No, no. Don't make me use the nightstick. I never used it yet. I never want to. Yeah, but I want to. Now give it to me. Now look out. Get away from me. The nightstick. No. You must. You must. You must. Their hour is struck. Their hour is struck. Their hour has struck. That's the last thing in the world I heard. Then I woke up down here. I understand he's really raised Kane, broke into the power station, banged up the generator. <laughs> Captain Bob. You just don't figure. Well, I, I don't suppose that one guy with a nightstick is going to do too much damage. Uh, well, it's not quite that simple. No, he took the nightstick and overpowered an armed guard. And now he has a gun. Oh, fine. And that's why we've gone to such great lengths to protect the place. Uh, I'll answer. Uh, this, uh, this they that he Get speaks up. of, he, uh, must mean the authorities here, is that it? Oh, I don't think so. At least he hasn't tried to harm any of them. And with that gun, he could do a pretty good job. Well, then who is the, uh, the they? Your guess is as good as mine. I see. That was one of the guards. The superintendent saw your car and raised the roof. Well, he told me I could come in. Yes, but not the car. He wants nothing on the grounds that could possibly be used by Captain Bob for an escape. He wants you to remove the car immediately. You can park it in the parking area outside the wall. I went on out and started driving back down the road to the gate. The little groups with flashlights were still scattered all about hunting for Captain Bob. But who was Captain Bob hunting for? My friend, the police sergeant, was still at the gate with his little red flashlight, again signaling me to stop. You again, cousin? Yeah, I'm just going to park the car. Be right back. What's that supposed to be? Good news? Well, go on. I passed the squad car scattered all over the place. The parking area was just ahead, and I started turning into it. I suddenly felt a metallic pressure on my neck, the barrel of a gun. Just keep going down the highway, my boy, and everything will be Jim Dandy. I could see him in the rearview mirror, bright eyes under shaggy gray brows, a bald head and a full pink face, and even bigger than they had described him. Yes, I had myself a first-class passenger, the one and only Captain Bob. No, isn't it a mortal sin the way old Captain Bob twisted them all around his little finger? Huh? Yeah, mental power. You know, ten ounces of brain tissue can move mountains, dry oceans, fill the sky with fire. Yeah, ten ounces, sure, but uh, me, I'm stuck with about half a gram falling for a gag like that. Uh, Where'd you call from? One of the other offices, keeping my voice very low, very official. The superintendent insists that the car be moved at once. <laughs> Ellen used to... I used to say to Ellen, you're the, the, the famous actress, Ellen Drew, you know. Uh-huh. Ellen, you must always remember, live the part. 
If you're supposed to be an oyster stew, then become an oyster stew. Make it so real the people get heartburn. <laughs> Captain Bob, she would reply in that sweet, gentle voice, what would I do without you? Well, that's very interesting. Uh, now that you've outsmarted all the guards, uh, what's the next step? Uh, to ruthlessly hunt down and exterminate humanity's greatest enemy. Which is who? Well, they. They? Well, who else? Those scavengers, those ravagers. I, I really don't care about myself. I, I've lived my years. I'm an old man. Uh, heavy with honor and with time. Uh, Aristophanes. Uh-huh. Of course, you know, I'm quite insane. Uh, no. Oh, yes, yes. So it doesn't matter about me. It's the others. Oh, what they have done to poor suffering humanity. I've heard the talk. Oh, yes, surely I have. You know, of course, I can hear quite distinctly for a distance of some 2,300 miles. Really? Oh, certainly, with the, the proper atmospheric conditions. Ah. And very often, late at night, I lie there in my bed listening to the people talking in the, oh, San Francisco and Houston and Memphis and uh, upper New York State and such places. Uh -huh. And what do I hear? They are causing prices to rise sky high. They buy more than they need. They hoard in their basements. They patronize the black market. They are so selfish, so thoughtless, they may bring on inflation and wipe out the savings and pensions of millions of innocent people. That's what I hear. I see. And this I hear. They certainly elect some shabby politicians. But what can you expect? Most of the time, they don't even bother to vote. If they don't use some judgment, they'll wreck the country. They again, you see that? Uh, yes, I see it. Yes, and I hear talk about war, too. They fell asleep again. If they don't wake up and prepare, civilization itself will go under, and they'll be to blame. They, 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 they do this and they do that. All the evil and suffering in the world, they are responsible for. They... Well, then isn't it all rather simple? Old Captain Bob's going to do the world one final service. He's going to find these they and shoot them down like dogs. That sounds like a reasonable idea. Yes, of course. Of course. I uh, saw your sign on your license plate. You're a newspaper man. Huh? Uh-huh. Well, then you must know where they live. You'll be able to bring me to them, huh? Well, I, I suppose so, but it might take a long time, Ken. Well, oh, you better not take any longer than from now till 7 o'clock tomorrow morning. Why? Well, I have to be back at the asylum by then for, for breakfast. I see. Mrs. Turner, the cook, she takes great pains preparing the oatmeal to my complete satisfaction. Oh, well, in that case... Why are you turning the car around? Well, if that's all the time we got, let's call it off for tonight and get a, an early start tomorrow evening, say, uh, around six. I see. Now you've decided to trick Captain Bob. No, no, not at all, but if you're expected for breakfast... Pull over to the curb. I'm not trying to trick at you. At the present angle of my gun, the bullet should enter your skull at the basal juncture. You will lose consciousness within one second, be dead within three. 
Uh, okay. Uh, you talked me into it. All right, now turn off the engine. Yep. Oh, it was a mistake to tell you I was insane. Now you think I'm on a harmless old fool, don't no, not you? Not at all. Oh, no, of course you do, but I'm not harmless, Sarah. I need your help, so I suppose I must convince you that I'll not hesitate to use this gun if you force me. I believe you. Oh, no, of course you don't. A strange weapon, is it not? A chunk of ore twisted into a vulgar shape, yet it's made man supreme. Oh, now, come on, put down the gun, Captain. Shooting me won't help you. Who said anything about you, my boy? Observe. Look, pointing it at your hand. Don't! <coughs> well, you've torn away half your finger. <coughs> That's all right. I have others. Let me use this handkerchief as a tourniquet. <coughs> no trickery. No now. trickery. Now, come on, here. <coughs> okay. Now, I've got to pull it tight. <coughs> all right, all right, now. That's better. What a thing to do. Now, you understand how serious I am about this. Yeah. Obviously, if I can use the gun on myself, I wouldn't hesitate to use the gun on you. If I felt you were trying to fool me. Obviously. So take me into the city. And let's hunt the rascals down. Yeah. One thing more, sir. Yeah? There can be trickery by omission. If you think you can drive me around in meaningless circles, well, let me hasten to assure you that if we haven't found them by breakfast, well, then I know you fool me. And I will kill you. NBC is bringing you Night Beat, starring Frank Lovejoy as Randy Stone. It's the Silver Jubilee on NBC. Tonight, your dial is set for adventure with Inspector Thorne and Mr. Keene, tracer of lost persons. This evening, actor Carl Weber comes to the NBC microphone as the fast-moving police investigator known as Inspector Thorne. Then later, Mr. Keene, tracer of lost persons, brings you the hard-hitting story of the poison sandwich murder case. Back to Nightbeat and Randy Stone. It was after one o'clock and I was driving through the Chicago streets, block after deserted block. The neon that never went to sleep, still shouting its multicolored messages to empty sidewalks. Past long rows of warehouses, wearily leaning one against the other, and through narrow cobblestone streets. Driving purposefully like I had nothing but jumbo-sized plans while actually I didn't even have a small pocket-sized idea. And Captain Bob in the back seat with his gun growing more impatient all the time. And now it was almost 2 a.m. And in my mind's eye I saw the good cook, what's-her-name, sleeping soundly and just a few hours away from starting the captain's oatmeal. And now we were getting close to the loop. I turned off Ashland Avenue to cross the bridge spanning the Chicago River. And at the other side of the bridge, I saw a most wonderful sight. Two police cars blocking the way, their red warning lights blinking angrily. 
Turn around quickly, my boy. And suddenly in the rear view mirror, I saw still another police car swing in behind us. We were caught on the bridge, trapped like a butterfly on a half dozen spears of light. Well, now what, Captain Bob? I'm turning the matter over in my mind. That you, Strong? Right. All right. Close in slowly, man. Mr. Stone, tell them how comfortable this gun feels against your head. Yeah. Uh, Lieutenant, take it easy. Captain Bob has sort of got me covered. Captain Bob, can you hear me? <laughs> can I hear him? I've heard Brisbane, Australia on a very calm night. Can I hear him? You hear me, Captain Bob? He hears you, but he's not impressed. Cap, what do you want them to do? Clear off the bridge so we can get on with our chore. It's getting late. Look, Cap, I'm going to be frank with you. And if you want to pull the trigger, well, my insurance is paid up. Well, what is it, my boy? I don't have any idea where they may be. Ah. Oh, it's true. But you take the lieutenant now, it's his job to know those things. I bet he could tell us where they are just like that. All right. Call him over and ask him. No, no, no. We can't do it that way. If he knows that you want to find out about they just to kill them, why, he'll never tell us. Well, why not, for goodness sake? Well, he just won't. He's a funny guy. So? Well, so let me go over and talk to him. You know, con him around, wheedle it out of him. Yeah. You think you can, my boy? Yes, I think so. I've, I've known him for many years. He's not very bright. Oh, I, I could tell that from his voice. He does all this talking from his jowls. So I'll go over and ask him, huh? You, uh, you wouldn't be fooling an old man with a sore finger. Scout's honor, Captain. All right, call that young policeman over there, the one that's leaning on the fender of the squat car. Oh, him? Oh, Oh, him. He's an old cousin of mine. Yeah, call him over if you want to talk to the lieutenant. All right. Hey, Sarge. Me? Yeah, come on over. Are you nuts or something? Send him over, lieutenant. Sergeant, go on. Cousin, the minute I saw you tonight, I knew I'd have been better off with typhoid. Uh, both of us. Now, I tell you what I'd like for you to do, young man. You... Just lean your head in through the window. What is this? Do what he says. I've got to go talk to the lieutenant. Now we take the gun from Mr. Stone's head and place it against yours. Hey. All right, Mr. Stone, go to your conference. The dashboard clock says seven minutes after two. If you've not returned by ten minutes after two, this unfortunate young man will meet with sudden disaster. Stone, I don't like this. Uh, no one could blame you, cousin. I started walking across the bridge to the lieutenant's patrol car. A long string of coal barges was slithering slowly by on the breezy waters far below. Now, whatever unknown radar wakens people out of a sound sleep and sends them running to disaster was already at work. Both ends of the bridge were lined with the curious, and most of the police officers were busy keeping them at a distance. Lieutenant Boyle stood beside his squad car. Uh, Lieutenant, tell me, how did you find out that he was with me? Uh, Sergeant, after you left to park your car and didn't come back, he started wondering. Checked and found it had been a phony call. It added up. 
We've been trying to corner you all night. What are you going to do with that character? Well, we've got one problem, and it's how to make him use up those bullets in his gun. Yeah. Well, now, look, I got a crazy thought. It might work. If it doesn't, well, it's my funeral, and as the little joke goes, that's not a figure of speech. All right. What is it? Uh, you know where the river view is? Yeah, that amusement park on the west side? Yeah. What are we going to do, ride the merry-go-round? Everything is closed up this time of the night, but see if you can get them to cooperate with you. Captain Bob is looking for something he calls they. Don't ask me to go into that. There's no time. But if we work this... Welcome back, my boy. Ah, uh, yeah. I, I was telling this lad here that those barges reminds me of my river days on the Mississippi. He seemed distinctly uninterested. I can't imagine why. All right, now point the gun at him. Yeah, right in the old basal juncture. Uh, and that's, that's it. Cousin, I was really sweating you out. Ah, uh, believe me, I was tempted to start walking. Yeah, yeah, well, uh, goodbye now. Did you get the information, my boy? Well, you know something? Uh, you ought to circle this date with a red pencil, Cap. What? This is your lucky night. Oh? They are all together under one roof. What? Having a meeting. Oh, doubtlessly plotting some new devil. Sure, but I know exactly where they are. Oh, this is grand news. Well, the police are leaving. Well, sure. I, I told them you were going to go back to the institution like a good, solid citizen. And so I shall. When I'm finished. But now, to the task ahead. Yeah, to the, uh, to the task ahead. It was 2.45 a.m. when we pulled up before the darkened amusement park. The Ferris wheel silhouetted against the dark sky and the empty seats creaking just a little as though worn out from generations of screaming children. The towering wooden structure of the Super Bobs, dipping and rising gracefully in the night. The fun house and the merry-go-round and the tunnel of love all sealed up. A wilderness of potential joy, but now very quiet and painfully lonely. An amusement park where no one was being amused. We walked down the boardwalk, Captain Bob gun in hand, and Randy Stone heart in mouth. A strange place for they to be meeting, my boy. Well, wouldn't they pick such a place knowing that no one would ever think of looking for them here? Well, well of course. Oh, the treachery of them. It's just ahead now. That little building there. Yes, yes. Oh, the dream of a lifetime reaching fruition. It's all boarded up, but you can see the lights gleaming through the cracks. Yes, yes. Now, here is what you've got to remember, Cap. Huh? There'll be many, many of them. They're all armed and they're on guard. I do not fear. No, no, but you want to get as many as you can. Oh, yes, indeed, indeed. Okay, now keep your voice down. Now, you've got to start shooting the instant you go through that door and keep shooting as fast as you can. Yes. That is, if you can shoot fast. Well, trust me, you will not be able to separate the sound of the shots. All right. Good luck. Uh, my boy, thank you. Will you shake my hand? Of course. You've been a loyal ally. 
The time will come when children will sing folk songs in your honor. Your statue will stand in public parks. Yeah. Now, look, I'm going to tear open the door and you rush in and start shooting. Yes, yes. Ready, set, go. After that, things happened rapidly. The park, which had seemed so empty now, suddenly filled with police all running toward me. And behind them came the swarms of citizens again, coming in all directions, attracted by the shots. Good work, Stone. Get the door open, boys. Bring them out. Through the open door, I looked in on the house of mirrors. Most of the mirrors were shattered now, just bits of glass hanging from the walls. And Captain Bob, the empty gun, hanging limply in his hand, still looking at the wreckage, dazedly realizing at last that he'd been shooting at his own reflections. Come on, old-timer, let's get going. Easy with him, boy. Yeah. That's it, easy. And now the entrance to the House of Mirrors was jammed with people craning their necks for a look. Step aside, give us room, come on. Move aside, folks, it's all over. Go on home. Come on now, one side. And while the police tried to clear a path through the crowd, for a moment or so, Captain Bob and I stood face to face. Oh, you tricked me after all, my boy. It's a cruel blow. Captain Bob didn't expect that of you. Come on, all of you. Move when I tell you. One side. Come on. Okay, Cap. Let's go. You tricked me. You shouldn't have done that to me, my boy. You just don't understand. And then he was gone. He was back home in plenty of time for his oatmeal without brown sugar. But even after they took old Captain Bob away, somehow the people still hung around the doorway of the House of Mirrors just in case there might be something else to see. Their faces reflected endlessly in the broken mirrors. All kinds of faces. Fat, lean, bright, dull, high and cheekbones, low cheekbones, square chins, no chins, white faces, black faces, endless faces. Millions of faces reflected again and again and again in the mirrors. And gradually it dawned on me that perhaps I hadn't tricked Captain Bob after all. I guess I had brought him to the right place. Because, of course, there's no big mystery about it. These were the they, all right. That's us, all of us. But if they are responsible for the bad, they are also responsible for the good. Actually, when you got right down to it, to end all the injustices that so angered Captain Bob, they need learn only one thing more, that they are the children of God, and that each of them is his brother's keeper. Wow, what a night. Uh, uh, one copy boy, one ice bag, and two aspirins, huh? Stay tuned for The Adventures of the New Sherlock Holmes, next on Theater of the Mind.
Time now for Basil Rathbone and Nigel Bruce as Sherlock Holmes and Dr. Watson and the episode, The Accidental Murderess. Petri Wine brings you Basil Rathbone and Nigel Bruce in the new adventures of Sherlock Holmes. The Petri family, the family that took time to bring you good wine, invite you to spend the next half hour listening to Dr. Watson tell us another exciting adventure he shared with his old friend, the world-famous detective, Sherlock Holmes. And now for the weekly visit with our good friend and host, Dr. Watson. Tonight, we find him on the stage of the Paramount Theater in Hollywood. Good evening, Doctor. Good evening, Mr. Bartell. If you've bought a victory bond, you're welcome. I have, Doctor. Now, what's the recipe for tonight's new Sherlock Holmes adventure? Well, now, let me see. Take equal parts of beautiful English countryside and black villainy. Mix them, add a dash of romance, a sprinkling of danger, season well with the usual theatrical condiments, and you have the case of the accidental murderess. Sounds like a tasty dish. Uh, How did the story begin, Doctor? On a beautiful summer day in 1895. Holmes had just concluded his famous investigation of the sudden death of Cardinal Tosca, an inquiry which was carried out at the express desire of His Holiness the Pope. And in consequence, the great man felt that a couple of weeks' rest in the heart of Warwickshire would be a pleasant change after our rather strenuous adventures in Italy. And so, Mr. Bartell, we went to Stratford-on-Avon. Oh, the home of Shakespeare, huh? Quite right, my boy. As a matter of fact, that was the reason that decided us to go there. Holmes was a great lover of the drama, you know. And at the time my story begins, the Shakespearean festival was in full swing. For the first week, our life there was calm and peaceful. During the daytime, we visited the local places of interest, such as Anne Hathaway's cottage and Shakespeare's birthplace. And the evenings found us at the theater. It was on a Tuesday, I remember, during our second week's stay that the trouble began. Holmes and I had gone for a walk through the nearby forest of Avon. He was in unusually good spirits that morning, and there was a distant, distinct, I mean, twinkle in his eye as he, as he said, Watson, for once I begin to wish that I were a man of wealth. Oh, and what makes you say that, Holmes? The beauty of this place, old fellow. I'm perfectly certain I'd be happy in retirement here. It's rather depressing to think that in a week or two the sordid necessity of making money will demand my return to Baker Street in a world of criminals. No, I must say that in an environment like this, it is a little hard to think of crime. How does the old saying go? Where every prospect pleases, and only man is vile. Yes, but uh, Shakespeare puts it even better, old chap. Oh, really? What's he say? Well, surely you remember the speech, and uh, as you like it, we saw the production two nights ago. Oh, I don't remember the speech. How did it go? In this setting, it's very remarkably opposite. Are not these woods more free from peril than the envious court? Here feel we but the penalty of Adam. The season's difference. Don't you remember? Sweet are the uses of adversity, which, like the toad ugly and venomous, wears yet a precious jewel in his head. And this our life exempt from public haunt finds tongues in trees, books in the running brook, Sermons in stones, and good in everything. I would not change it. Upon <laughs> my soul, you read that much better than the fellow on the stage the other night. <laughs> Don't tell me I adopted the wrong profession, Watson. Oh, dear me, wait a minute. 
path seems to end here. Nothing but dense trees ahead of us. There's another path over there. I think it leads down to the river. Then let's follow it. The Avon is always... Great Scott, that was a... Ah! Holmes! Holmes, you hurt? Ah, yes, I think I am. Bullet hit my shoulder. I think it's only grazed it. Well, get off your coat quickly. Let's have a look. on your scratch. First, let's find out where it was fired from. I heard the thud of of a bullet in the tree behind me. Yes, here we are. Give me a pen knife, old fellow, will you? There you are. Thanks. Do you suppose that that shot was deliberate? Well, I can't imagine someone mistaking me for a rabbit, Watson. And by the way, uh, there was a curious echo to that shot. I don't know whether you noticed it. Uh Uh-huh. Here's the bullet. Now, let me see. I was standing there. A line from this bullet hole in the tree through the spot where I was standing would indicate that the shot was fired from that cluster of trees over there. Come on, Watson. Let's see what a search discloses. Uh, I wish you'd let me look at that shoulder before you start galloping all over the countryside, Holmes. You're bleeding quite profusely. Oh, plenty of time to look at it when we... Hello. Look over there. Uh, a man and woman running towards us across the clearing. Yes, and carrying guns. Yes, it looks as if it was an accident after all. Was anyone hurt? Yes, sir. My friend was hit in the shoulder. Oh, how dreadful. It's not a bad wound, is it? Oh, it's only a scratch, madam, I, I hope. But you put the blood on your coat. Well, just, um, how did this, uh, well, this accident happen, sir? Well, we were, we were out rabbit shooting. I was teaching my wife to use a rifle. I, I saw a rabbit scurry across the clearing. I raised the rifle and fired. It seemed to me, Jeffrey, that as I did so, you jolted my arm. Yes, I'm afraid I did, Alice. I was going to fire, too, but as I raised my rifle, I jolted your elbow and sent your shot wild. I, I can't tell you how sorry I am, sir. Uh, here, uh, here's my card. Of course, we'll take care of any expenses that may be entailed. Well, the first thing to do is to find out how much damage has been done. You'd better take your coat off, old fellow. I, uh, I, I don't, don't think I can. Oh, he, he's badly hurt. No, it, it's just that... Oh. oh, the man's fainted. Oh, this is dreadful. Uh, I have a horse and trap down the road. Excellent. Give me a hand with him, will you? Uh, I must get him to a hospital as, as fast as possible. <laughs> Holmes, Holmes, you feeling any better? Has the nurse gone? Yes, 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 she's bringing the house surgeon. And the uh, man and his wife? They're down in the hospital waiting room. Oh. I found out their name. It's, it's Markham. Then we're alone. Yes, 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 old fellow. In that case, I can stop behaving as if I were at death's door. Holmes! You mean that you... You shammed that collapse yourself? Yes, yes, I did, Watson. Oh, well, this oh, me a little pity, old chap. My shoulder is confoundedly painful, I assure you. Well, uh, I'm sure it is. But what made you pretend to faint? I recognize this Mrs. Markham, and I think she recognized me. It's important she assume I'm out of action for a while. Oh? Mrs. Markham... Why? Well, Mrs. Markham is, um, in reality, the notorious Mrs. Dangerfield. You remember the Dangerfield case? Dangerfield? Great, Scott, Yes. She was tried for the murder of her husband by poisoning, wasn't she? Yes, she was, old fellow. She was acquitted when the jury decided she was an habitual arsenic addict who happened to take an accidental overdose. Well, didn't you have some connection with right. the case? It was I who tracked down the sale of the arsenic she claimed to have bought for cosmetic purposes. Well, if you ask me, that shot at you was no accident. Oh, of course it wasn't. I'm certain that I was recognized. In any case, her record is a bad one. Prior to her husband's death, there was an episode in which her uncle was killed in a shooting accident on a grouse moor in Scotland. An uncle who left her a large fortune on his death. I uh, suppose Mrs. Dangerfield was a member of the shooting party when the uh, 
accident happened. Yes, she was. And she's something of a femme fatale, Watson. I must plan my actions very cautiously. I'm up against a dangerous opponent. Well, you'll have to stay in the hospital until your wound's being examined and dressed. That's true, old fellow. And while the local staff are taking care of that, I want you to shadow the Markham. Of course I will, Holmes. Stick close to them, old fellow. Make them believe that I'm going to be kept here for some days. Find out as much as you can, and then report to me. Right, I'll do my best. <laughs> it's, it's awfully kind of you, Mrs. Markham, to insist on having me back to your house for lunch. My dear Dr. Watson, after injuring the famous Mr. Holmes, it's the least I could do. Oh, of course it is. <laughs> Jeffrey, dear, will you bring us some sherry? It's Ada's day off, you know. Very well, Alice. Uh, is anyone else coming to lunch? Only Dennis Romney. Oh, Lord, that fellow seems to live here. Well, I'll go and get the sherry. Sit down, won't you, Dr. Watson? Oh, thank you, madam. Thank you. You, uh, you say that you think Mr. Holmes will be in the hospital for some days? I'm afraid so. The wound wasn't serious. He lost quite a bit of blood. Oh, I feel perfectly dreadful about it. Well, you mustn't blame yourself too much, madam. It was an accident. Yes, but I might so easily have killed him. Well, you haven't, and that's all that matters. Uh, did you say that uh, Dennis Romney was coming to lunch? Is that the actor fellow from the Memorial Theater? Yes. Have you seen him on the stage? Yes, 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 several times. Holmes and I have been going to the festival regularly since we came down here. A fine actor, isn't he? A shame they give him such poor parts. Well, good. Imagine him letting that frightful Basil Grant play Hamlet last night, while Dennis only played Laertes. <laughs> Dennis is three times a better actor. <laughs> he, uh, he's coaching me in acting. Oh, coaching you? Really? Yes, he thinks that I may be able to get small parts here next season. I've always had a great urge to go on the stage, but no one's ever encouraged me before. Oh, here's Jeffrey. This sherry is rather special, Doctor. Harry's de la Frontera. <laughs> Only a few bottles left. Oh, that's very nice of you, sir. Oh, that must be Dennis. I'll go let him in. Uh, we might as we might as well have a drink. You'll find it'll help making this actor fellow more tolerable. I take it, Mr. Markham, that you're not an admirer of Mr. Dennis Romney's. Don't bear him. He's always quoting Shakespeare and behaving generally as if he were another Irving. <laughs> We've got Alice completely fooled. Here's a glass, Doctor. Oh, thank you, sir. Thank you. Dennis, I want to introduce you to Dr. Watson. How do you do, Mr. Romney? How do you do, sir? Hello, Jeffrey. Hello. Want a glass of sherry? Uh, thanks. That'd be very nice. Are you um, a disciple of the theatre, Dr. Watson? Well, hardly a disciple, sir, but I've been attending the festival during the last week. I enjoyed your performances immensely, if I may say so. Oh, you may say so, Doctor. Here's your sherry, Dennis. Oh, don't be talkative, Jeffrey. And please remember that Dennis is our guest. Oh, it's all right, Alice. I know that Jeffrey's bark is a good deal worse than his bite. <clears throat> and, uh, and what play are you appearing in tonight, Mr. Romney? King Lear, I shall once again portray the thankless role of the King of France. While that incredibly bad actor, Basil Grant, tears a multitude of passions to tatters in his rendition of Lear. Oh, horrible, horrible, most horrible. I thought his Hamlet was atrocious last night, Dennis. Wasn't it? When he came to his final line, the rest is silent. As much as I could do to prevent cheering. I felt rather the same way when you were killed in the duel, Dennis. Oh, Jeffrey, <laughs> you're being intolerably rude. Why don't you take Dr. Watson upstairs and show him your butterfly collection? Then at least you'll know what you're talking about. Are you interested in butterflies, Doctor? I, I have quite a rare collection. Oh, really? I'd like to see them very much. Come on, then. Uh, I think we've just got time before lunch. Try and bring yourself down with a few better manners, Jeffrey, dear. I'm really quite an easygoing man, Doctor, but 
The arrogance of that fellow Romney infuriates me. Well, I must say, he does seem to have rather a good opinion of himself. Don't, uh, don't put too much weight on that balcony rail. It's absolutely full of wormholes. Part of the attraction of an old house, my wife tells me. But I regard it as confoundedly dangerous. Yeah, and this is my little museum. In these cases, I think you'll find some of the finest specimens of Lepidoptera you've ever seen. It's my hobby, and I may say that, with the exception of the Natural History Museum, I doubt if you'll find a finer collection. It must have taken you years to collect them. It has. Many years, many disappointments, and a great deal of patience. Look at this fellow. He's my prize specimen, a North American monarch. North American monarch? Beautiful, beautiful. Yeah, isn't he? And this is an admiral. Well, of course, I know him. rare. And this is a perfect bee-hawk moth. Bee-hawk and uh, moth. here's an emperor. Ever see more exquisite markings? Well, never. Uh, tell me, Mr. Markham, when you captured a butterfly, how do you kill it without marking it in any way? With poison. Oh? What poison? Cyanide. Not arsenic? You heard me say cyanide, Doctor. The only reason I mention it is that a friend of mine collected butterflies once, and I'm certain that he always used arsenic to kill them. Why do you keep talking of arsenic? You're trying to hint at something. No, 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 my dear fellow. I was just curious, that's all. Yes. You're a trifle too curious, perhaps. Ha, there's the luncheon gong. Let's go downstairs again. Uh, I see, old man. Uh, I didn't mean to offend you. No, of course you didn't. But my nerves are a little on edge today. It must be that accident to your friend that's upset him. I really must get that balcony rail mended. What is it, sir? My wife. Young Romney. They're going into lunch. Listen. Darling, why won't you understand? Oh, oh, oh. Arthur, you bet you forget me. You think I'm knowing that, you think, He's never understood me. Well, Doctor, they say that listeners never hear good of themselves. You know, sometimes I wonder... My wife wouldn't like me out of the way. Uh, let's go down to lunch, shall we? And so, Holmes, that's the story up to now. A very interesting one, too, Watson. So you think that uh, Mrs. Markham is planning to kill her husband, eh? Oh, it's obvious. She's in love with the actor fuller, Dennis Romney. Her husband's in the way, and if she doesn't want to use poison this time, there's a, a perfect setting for murder in that crumbling balustrade on the landing. Mm-hmm. One push when he wasn't looking, and it'd be the end of him. And no one could prove that she did it. A charming household. And Mr. Markham became very evasive, you say, when you mentioned arsenic. Yes. I said it deliberately, of course, to see how he'd react. If you ask me, he knows that his wife has arsenic of the house. He was trying to protect her. You've exerted your charm sufficiently to arrange to see them again, I trust. Well, yes. As a matter of fact, I have. They're taking a picnic tea and going boating on the Avon this afternoon. They asked me to join them. Of course, I agreed. I just rushed back here to the hospital to report to you first. You've done splendidly, Watson. Splendidly. Oh, thanks so much, uh, But uh, I've been so busy telling you what I found out that I haven't asked you about you. Um, how are you feeling? Oh, I'm fine, old fellow. Fine. Uh, what did the house surgeon discover? A very interesting fact. Look in the drawer beside my bed, will you? Great Scott, it's a bullet. A bullet that the house surgeon removed from my shoulder. But, but we found a bullet in the tree also. Precisely. Therefore, two bullets were fired. But, good Lord, that means... It means, old chap, that we have a dangerous task ahead of us. 
not to solve a murder, but to prevent one. And now, Dr. Watson, what happened next? We left you at Sherlock Holmes' bedside in the hospital. Did the picnic with Mr. and Mrs. Markham prove an exciting one? No, no, it was rather unpleasant, as a matter of fact. The three of them kept squabbling all the time, and just as we were coming home, something unforeseen occurred. Mr. Markham fell into the river. Well, pardon the old question, Doctor, but uh, did he fall or was he pushed? It was hard for me to say. I had my back to him when he fell. Uh, of course, we fished him out and rattled him back home in a trap as fast as we could. He changed his clothes at once, and as we sat round the fire a little later... I could see that he'd caught a chill. In fact, I recommended that he go to bed and stay there. Mrs. Markham agreed with me. Yes, dear, I, I do wish you'd follow Dr. Watson's advice and go to bed. For the fifth time, Alice, I will not go to bed. I'm perfectly all right. Now, it's no thanks to you and Dennis. What do you mean by that remark, Jeffrey? You know perfectly well what I mean. It wasn't an accident that I fell in the river just now. One of you two pushed me when I was struggling with the punt pole in the long reed. Jeffrey, you're talking rubbish. Am I? You were in the boat, Dr. Watson. Didn't you see what happened? No, I didn't, sir. My back was turned to you when you fell in. Well, then we'll call it an accident. An accident that happened by a curious coincidence, just where the river is deepest and the reeds thickest. Jeffrey, I don't like your tone. You can accuse me of anything you like, but when you start suggesting that Alice... If you don't like the way I talk to my wife, I suggest that you don't come to my house. I'm going to get a scarf, I'm silly. (sighs) Dr. Watson, I, I must apologize for my husband's behavior. I don't know what's come over. Oh, that's quite all right, Mr. Markham. I quite understand. Well, I wish I did. I, I don't mind him yelling at me, but being so abominably rude to you, Alice. The last couple of weeks, it's been getting worse than ever. I know. Ever since we had that argument about the insurance policies, he's been unbearable. Insurance? Yes, Doctor. We took out quite large policies on each other's lives recently. You, you didn't tell me that, Alice. Well, it, it was his idea. And yet when the insurance man came here... You'd have thought I was forcing him into taking out the policy. Insurance? Great Scott, I... I... You what, Doctor? I... Uh, oh, nothing, Mr. Markham. No, no, nothing at all. Sounds as if you don't approve of insurance, sir. Oh, it's not that, Romney. It's just that I... Well, who can that oh. be? I wasn't expecting anyone. Answer the door, yes, Dennis, will you? Yes, sir. Oh, sounds as if Jeffrey's already done so. Oh, uh, Alice, we have a visitor. Holmes, you shouldn't be up. Good evening, Mrs. Markham. Hello, Watson. Well, uh... I'm delighted to see you, Mr. Holmes. So I understood from your friend that you'd be in the hospital for several days. The constitution of an ox and the obstinacy of a mule, two characteristics of mine, have combined in making possible an early departure from the hospital. (laughs) How do you do, Mr. Romney? I think I've seen you at the theatre. My name is Sherlock Holmes. How do you do, sir? You'll stay to supper, I hope. If it's not inconvenient, Mrs. Markham. Of course it isn't. I'll go in and arrange for it. On my soul, Holmes, I, I'm glad to see you. And are you, old fellow? Let's take a stroll on the terrace, shall we? It's rather warm inside this evening. You can go out through the French windows. Oh, thank you, Mr. Markham. Holmes, are you quite sure that you're well enough to go walking about? Of course I am. You must tell me, Watson, what the latest developments are. In the meantime, I myself have not been idle. Yes, Watson, I think our stage is set, but I have a feeling that I may contribute to a rather dramatic last act curtain. <laughs> Oh, <laughs> a delightful meal, Mrs. Markham. Oh, thank you, Doctor. 
Mr. Holmes, you're not eating very much. My appetite is a trifle jaded. The mental sensing that we have indulged in during the meal has been somewhat disturbing. I don't understand you. Oh, come now, madam. I know that you were once Mrs. Dangerfield, and you know that I know it. Why keep up the pretense any longer? Very well, Mr. Holmes. But we needn't converse in lowered voices. I'm sure that you've told Dr. Watson whatever there is to know, and perhaps more. I admire your courage, madam. Jeffrey, Dennis. Yes, sir. I want you to listen to this. Mr. Sherlock Holmes knows that I was once Mrs. Dangerfield. He's apparently under the impression that this is a dark secret of mine. Mr. Holmes, Jeffrey knew and loved me before I ever married Mr. Dangerfield. Of course I did, Holmes. He stood by me during the horrible trial after my first husband's death. And I told Dennis about the whole miserable business months ago. So I really don't see that you've uncovered any great secrets. Not yet, Mrs. Markham, but I have a feeling that it's only a matter of moments. So you haven't got any secrets from Dennis either, eh? There's no need to shout, Jeffrey. And there's no need for Dennis to be in my house. Get out, Romney, and stay out. This business between you and Alice has gone far enough. I'll go when Alice tells me to. Well, if you won't go, then I'm not going to sit here. I'm... I'm going upstairs. You're shaking like a leaf, sir. You've got a fever. Don't you think you'd better go to bed? Mind your own business and leave me alone. Uh, Mrs. Markham, I really think you should persuade your husband to go upstairs and lie down. Don't worry, Mr. Holmes. I know how to handle him. I'll take him up. Put an arm around my shoulder, Jeffrey. Come along. We should follow them, Holmes. They have to pass that crumbling banister on the landing. With him in that state, she, she might try to... What are you suggesting, Shh. Doctor? Come and watch, both of you. We can observe them both from the foot of the stairs here. They're on the landing. She's on the outside. Look, 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 look. Arkham stumbled against her. He's pushed her against the railing. Look out! Come on, Alice! Alice, are you all right? Yes, but Jeffrey tried to push me through the railing. That's a lie. No, it isn't, sir. The three of us were watching you from below. But the railing held. I, I don't understand. I can explain that, Watson. This afternoon, while you were all at your picnic, I came here with a local carpenter. You had informed me, old fellow, that it was the maid's day off, and I took the liberty of reinforcing that decaying woodwork. What the blazes do you think you've been up to, Holmes? Preventing murder, sir, and finding the true solution to the Dangerfield case. What do you mean, Mr. Holmes? The true solution? Surely it's obvious to you, Mrs. Markham. You have told us that your present husband loved you before you married Mr. Dangerfield. It was he who accidentally killed your uncle so that you might inherit a fortune. It was he who accidentally gave your first husband an overdose of arsenic. Arsenic that he obtained for the purpose of destroying butterflies. Yes, yes, yes. It was he who tried to send you to your death by pushing you through those railings. And all the time, Mrs. Markham, I thought that you were the potential murderer. You fellows have got hold of the wrong end of the stick. All I've been trying to do is to conceal the fact that my wife was a murderer. Jeffrey, how can you say that? Markham, if you wait, just a moment, Mr. Romney. I'm not through with him yet. This talk is all very dramatic, Mr. Holmes, but I wonder how you're going to be able to prove it. Dr. Watson, Mr. Romney, and I will testify to the attempt that you've just made on Mrs. Markham's life. Yes, and what about the attempt on your life, Holmes? Obviously, it was Markham who fired at you in the woods. But my wife has already admitted firing the shot. true, sir. But two shots were fired. The one that your wife fired, we found in the tree. The one that you fired was extracted from my shoulder in the hospital. Then the two shots were fired simultaneously. You remember, Watson, that I commented at the time on a curious echo. Mrs. Markham told us that her arm was jolted as she pulled the trigger. That was when the other rifle was fired. Mr. Markham didn't want me on the scene when he staged his latest accident, and so he tried to kill me. What kind of a devil have I been living with all these years? I think I'm going to kill you, Mark. Don't come near me. Keep him away from me. I'll leave him to the law courts, Mr. Romney. British justice may be slow, as indeed it was in the Dangerfield case, but in the long run, it is sure. You'll find that out, Mr. Markham, 
on the gallows. Well, tell me, Doctor, did Mr. Markham finally end on the gallows? Yes, he did. And it might interest you to know that Mrs. Markham and Dennis Romney were married. A nice chap and a, and a fine actor, that boy. Hmm. Maybe that's what I should have been. An actor. Hmm? To be or not to be, that is the question. Whether it is noble <coughs> in the mind to suffer. <coughs> oh, what's the matter, Doctor? Don't you like it? The words are beautiful, but the, your delivery of them... Uh... Not good, huh? No, not good, Mr. Bardo. Okay. I'd rather talk about Petri wine anyway. Now, there's something to really talk about. Petri wine. A wine with generations of winemaking behind it. That's a fact, you know. The Petri family started making Petri wine generations ago. Oh, way back in the 1800s. So they've had the time to develop the art of winemaking, and they've been able to hand down that art from father to son, from father to son. Yes, the Petri family really knows how to turn luscious, sun-ripened California grapes into clear, fragrant, delicious wine. And those letters, P-E-T-R-I, on the bottle, are the personal assurance of the Petri family that every drop of Petri wine is good wine. It's got to be. Because don't forget, Petri took time to bring you good wine. Well, Dr. Watson, what new Sherlock Holmes story are you going to tell us next week? Well, now, let me see. Next week, Mr. Bartell, I'm going to tell you an exciting adventure Holmes and I had in North Africa. It begins at the headquarters of the Foreign Legion and ends with a strange death in the cafe of a thousand sighs. I call the story Murder in the Casper. <laughs> Tonight's Sherlock Holmes adventure is written by Dennis Green and Anthony Boucher and was suggested by an incident in the Sir Arthur Conan Doyle story, The Adventure of Black Peter. Music is by Dean Fossler. Mr. Rathbone appears through the courtesy of Metro-Goldwyn-Mayer and Mr. Bruce through the courtesy of Universal Pictures, where they are now starring in the Sherlock Holmes series. Petri Wine Company of San Francisco, California, invites you to tune in again next week, same time, same station. This is Harry Bartell saying goodnight for the Petri family. This program originated in the Paramount Theater in Hollywood for an audience of Victory Bond Myers. Thank you for listening. Tomorrow night, it's Our Miss Brooks, followed by Richard Diamond, Private Detective. Thanks to Joel Shonwell and Paul Stringer for technical support. The executive producer for Theater of the Mind is Moses Neimer. I'm Frank Proctor. Have a great night. This podcast is proudly produced and presented by the Zoomer Podcast Network, home of great podcasts like Marilyn Lightstone Reads, Idea City on the Air, and The Garden Show.